By the time the Tumblr comes along, one of the key innovations it has is a tagging system where you can find people who tag themselves by certain kinds of terms or ideas you know, all across the world and certainly across the United States. And that allows a kind of experimentation, a proliferation of different identity categories that would just have been too marginal and too rare before to actually command sort of enough members to be a real group. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum, or Megan Dom. It's up to you. I'm still thinking about it. If you are someone who follows the current battles over free speech and shifting definitions of liberalism, you are probably familiar with my guest. Yasha Monk is a political scientist, an author, a podcast host, naturally, and the founder of Persuasion, a digital magazine and community devoted to providing discussion forums about society, politics, and culture. He is the author of several books, including a brand new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. That book offers a comprehensive overview of the modern identity movement and its relationship to ideas about social justice. And it traces that movement's origins back to a number of thinkers, including Michel Foucault, and leads us right up to the emergence of Tumblr. In this conversation, we talk about all of that, as well as Yash's work with persuasion, his relationship to America, he was born and raised in Germany, and his experience as a professor he teaches at Johns Hopkins University. If you are a paying subscriber to the Substack for this podcast, you can hear Yasha stay overtime and talk about his feelings about aging. He's 41, spoiler, our mutual feelings about the changing media landscape, and a lot more. So as always, you can go to Megan Daum or Dom dot substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M dot substack.com. Become a paying subscriber and you get that bonus content almost every week. And in the meantime, this is for everyone. Here is the main portion of my conversation with Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk, welcome to The Unspeakable. Megan, thank you for having me. Your new book, The Identity Trap, does about as comprehensive a job as anything I've seen of tracing the origins of the modern identity movement, what we now call identity politics. Some people call wokeism. I'm still trying to find the right word. Your central idea is something called the identity synthesis. So before we kind of back up and I want to have you talk about why you wrote this book now, explain what you mean by identity synthesis. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, as you were saying just now, you don't quite know what to call this movement, even though you thought a lot about it. Um, And this is a problem in the public conversation, that the only terms we have for this ideology uh, have been sort of so politicized, I think partially, deliberately, that you can't have a serious grappling with where these ideas come from, how they would transform society, and whether, in fact, they are a good idea. And so, you know, partially for the purposes of a book, I just wanted to choose a relatively neutral, even boring term, which would allow us to understand these ideas and grapple with them in a serious way. And, you know, nowadays, if you say, you know, wokeness, uh, you know, on every second page or on every second sentence, you just sound like a kind of old man shouting at the clouds. And that's Yeah, what although you would avoid. sell a lot of copies, though. So. Yeah, I might sell more copies, yeah. Um, now, part of 
uh, uh, why I then say it's the identity synthesis is, is two basic ideas. The first is that this is a new set of ideas about identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation, uh, which you know really place identity at the very heart of our culture and politics. Uh, and there's something genuinely new about that. It's, it's, it's a genuinely different departure, especially for the political left, where these ideas uh, have now become quite dominant. And the other reason for the synthesis is that I chronicle in the first part of the book how uh, this popularized form of the identity synthesis really draws on uh, the work of a set of scholars, starting with Michel Foucault and other postmodernist thinkers in post war Paris, going through the post-colonial uh, movement with thinkers like Edward Said and uh, Gayatri Spivak, and then culminating in critical race theory with figures like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. And even though these ideas originate in somebody like Foucault, they're really a, a synthesis of different moves that people make as they grapple with each other's ideas. And what we get to at the end is quite different from what was there at the beginning. So that's why to really understand what some people might call wokeness, you have to understand how these different ideas about identity have been synthesized and then popularized and simplified in our public sphere over the last decade. And, and the first half of the book really traces uh, that historical origin. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about how a lot of people, you know, sort of in the vernacular and the kind of, you know, most baseline kind of Twitter discourse tend to chalk a lot of this up to Marxism, post-Marxism, right? And, and that's like really oversimplistic. So by way of getting there, let's, let's start with Foucault, actually, because th this is a guy, Michel Foucault is a guy that people, they like to bandy his name about if they took one class in college where he came up. But he's, a lot of this, as you just said, starts with him and people are sort of really mischaracterizing a lot of his views, you say. Yeah, so so you know a lot of the uh, uh, critiques of uh, you know the origins of of, of wokeness or the, the nature of a movement call it a form of cultural Marxism, and, and broadly you know that means that they think you you take something like Orthodox Marxist thought in 1925 or something like that, and you take out the category of social class, you stuff in these various different identity categories, and you have um, you know the stuff that is dominant on Twitter today. And, you know, that is just fundamentally wrong for, for, for a number of uh, substantive structural reasons of how this ideology works today, but also for historical reasons. And to actually understand what the main themes of the identity synthesis are and what drives it, and ultimately also, I believe, what's wrong with it, you have to understand the real intellectual history of this. Um, well, that's great. I actually am an intellectual historian by training. That's what I did in my undergrad and um, a lot of my doctoral studies. And so I went to actually read up on this stuff. And I was open to the idea that this might really have Marxist inspiration. It's a perfectly plausible thought. Um, but once you start doing the reading, it becomes very clear uh, that that just simply isn't the case. And Foucault is uh, one of the key reasons for that. Uh, because Foucault himself does join the French Communist Party in 1950, which is an orthodox communist party steered by Moscow. He remains a member of that party for three years, but he chafes against it from the beginning. And he leaves it in 1953 in part uh, because the French Communist Party starts to blame Jewish doctors for the death of Joseph Stalin uh, in a kind of obvious smear. And, and Foucault takes a real risk in that. Um, you know, the, the dominant intellectuals at the time, like Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, think of Marxism as vidifying 
philosophy of the second half of the 20th century. And they hate him for breaking with Marxism in that kind of way. So where Foucault has his intellectual starting point is in a rejection of what he calls grand narratives, grand accounts of how history works and what is true and the direction in which the world is going. And one of those is a liberal grand narrative about how sort of living up to the universal principles of liberalism has made the world a better place and uh, you know, Fanny, now France is more just than it was and so on, a narrative to which I have some sympathy in, in, in modified and uh, reasonable form. And he rejects that. That's one of the reasons why this movement from the beginning is in direct opposition to liberal democracy and philosophical liberalism. But Foucault also rejects another grand narrative, which is that of Marxism, uh, the idea that revolutions, uh, proletarian revolutions are inevitable and the task of intellectuals is to be the intellectual vanguard fighting to prepare those kinds of revolutions. He rejects that as another grand narrative. Okay. And just so uh, we make sure everybody stays with us, we're, we're going to kind of, I want you to sort of walk us through the timeline of this, because we're going to get all the way up to Tumblr, which personally, I just thought that was fascinating. The way that you do this dissection of of the Tumblr phenomenon and how that was really, that was really the starting point of a lot of the contemporary, quote unquote, wokeness that we started to see, you know, I don't know, 2013, 2014 kind of stuff. But okay, but way before we get there. So we go from Foucault, who does he pass the the torch to? Yeah, so I've told you so far sort of what Foucault rejects, but in a way what's more important is what he embraces, what he believes, right? And he makes a, a, a few important uh, observations that really get the identity synthesis going. Beyond his rejection of the idea of sort of absolute truth and so on, it is uh, the idea that power is exercised by political discourses. Right. If you ask a smart high schooler, how does political power work? They'll say, well, there's a president and, you know, a Congress and they pass laws. And when there's an army and police force and, you know, they punish you if you don't obey the law and so on. Right. So sort of a top down phenomenon. And something like Foucault says, no, that's not the most important way that power operates. It powers through these kind of cultural discourses. So, you know, this podcast itself is actually a tool of power in some key ways. And perhaps if you want to critique how power operates in your society, you don't just say this law is unjust, you say the way we talk about X topic is unjust. Uh, and another key move he makes is actually a real skepticism towards identity categories. So Foucault himself is what we today would call gay or homosexual, but he rejected that label as a kind of modern invention that really constrained how you can think about the world, the stereotyped uh, him for, uh, you know, certain sexual acts in which he might engage. Yeah. Actually, just stop you for a second. So Foucault died from AIDS in 1984. I did not realize that. What was going on in his life? What, like, what was he responding to just in his his day-to-day life? Like, what what were the issues that he was commenting on and thinking about? Well, he he talked about a sort of broad range of issues from... Uh, certainly from from questions about sex and, and sexual orientation to questions about uh you know the, the prison system and 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 the sort of judicial system to questions about mental health um and in all of these he sort of uh, you know was a real skeptic of how uh, we construe certain narratives of progress right so you might think that the, the the sort of treatment of people who are mentally ill in paris in 1960 is much more humane than it was 
in the 1800s. Uh, and Foucault would say, no, we've changed how we control people who don't fit standard uh, uh, you know, social norms, but it hasn't become more humane. Again, on punishment, you might say a modern prison is much more humane than public executions or the drawing and quartering of people, these huge public spectacles you used to have in Europe. And again, Foucault wants to say, well, perhaps we've started to punish better, more effectively, more efficiently, but not necessarily more more humanely. So he's really sort of thinking through these big issues and, and every time trying to say that what looks like progress isn't progress, what looks like truth isn't progress, what looks like a coherent sort of category of identity or something like that isn't necessarily that. But the key movement then is how different people take up this thought, right? So what you end up having is this deep skepticism about truth, skepticism about grand narrative, skepticism about identity categories, this, this, this emphasis on, on discourses but also a kind of quietest political philosophy. Where Foucault says, you know, if you manage to disrupt one kind of discourse, it'll just reconstitute itself in a new way. You might win a moment of freedom, but after that, you'll be as unfree as you were before. And so then you have the entry of a set of post-colonial thinkers uh, like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak. And they are grappling with, uh, you know, our countries have been colonized for, for many centuries. Uh, they're now newly independent. Uh, or fighting for independence. And we have to think through what kind of set of ideas and so on should govern them. How can we make sure that uh, they do better in, in, in future? And so uh, Said in particular is inspired by Foucault's critique of prevailing discourses. What he says is, you know, the West has construed this idea of the East, this idea of the Orient, as somehow backward or inferior or immature. And that is what allowed this project of colonial domination to persist for such a long time. And he cites Foucault very positively. Foucault is, the, is just about the only thinker he cites positively in Orientalism and, and the one he cites the most. But he also says, especially later, you know what, Foucault is insufficient because he just wants us to critique those discourses. But the point is to actually change power relations, right? What I want to do is not just to sort of uncover how the West has exercised power over India, or, um, over the Middle East. It is to give people in those parts of the world the tools to fight back. And so he creates this kind of politicized form of discourse critique, of discourse analysis, that, that really becomes the dominant mode of academia, of scholarship in, in, in a lot of the humanities, right? And becomes really a core inspiration of social movements today. What it is to be a feminist today, from, in the minds of many people, is to defend or critique or engage with the Barbie movie and the kind of ways in which it, you know, guides social discourses. And how we're going to make progress is by better representation or better framing or better whatever of those kind of cultural Issues, right? So this really becomes the fundamental tool in how we think about a lot of those issues today, particularly, but not just on the identitarian left. The other key figure in the post-colonial tradition who's also uh, struggling with how to uh, sort of use and interpret postmodernists like Michel Foucault, as well as Derrida and Deleuze and others, is Gayatri Spivak. Now, you know, Spivak is... Uh, born in Kolkata uh, in, in Bengal in India, become, makes her name by uh, translating and commenting on post modern post-structuralist texts. What year was she born? When was she working? 
Uh, she's still alive and she's in her, her, in her mid or late 80s now. So I, 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 I'm, I'm guessing I should know this exactly over the top of my head, but she was born in the late 30s or early 40s. Okay, now just so we have a sense of her, the era. In yeah, yeah. She was, and she's still, I believe, teaching at, at Columbia. I don't think she's, she's retired yet. And so she's trying to say, okay, look, uh, I effectively buy the skepticism towards identity categories that uh, people like Foucault have. And there's no essence of a homosexual. For that matter, there's no essence of somebody who's brown or black or something like that. The sort of skepticism of these identity categories is, is, is broadly right. But whereas Foucault and uh, Deleuze and others say that the sort of oppressed, what you call the subaltern, can fight for themselves, can speak for themselves, that is not true in all parts of the world. If you're a sort of worker, a proletarian in Paris, who you know, has enough to eat and um, has voting rights and uh, was able to get an education and is literate, then perhaps you can speak for yourself. But if you are you know, somebody in Kolkata who hasn't gotten a school education and uh, who has much lower social standing and so on, you can't really speak for themselves. We need to speak for those groups. That is the task of, of, of intellectuals. But that then uh, requires you to embrace some form of group identity. You have to be able to speak on behalf of some kind of identity group. And so Spiva comes up with a slightly puzzling idea of what she calls strategic essentialism. So it's the recognition that these essentialist accounts of identity are basically wrong, are basically mistaken. But then she says, despite that, for strategic purposes, we should act as though they were true, as though they were right. You know, there may not really be such a thing as a woman, but for strategic purposes, this is something that reads sort of interestingly or ironically from today's perspective, will define women the way they're often defined in society, which is, quote-unquote, genitally, by the fact that they have a clitoris. And that's going to be our definition of what a woman is. And so... She was actually way, saying that. This was... She actually, was saying that, you know, and I don't think at the time that wouldn't have thought to be controversial. Today, obviously, in, in the context of debates about... Uh, about trans uh, uh, questions and rights, you know, uh, ironically, she would she would be sort of uh, uh, deeply heterodox, um, um, for she may have updated how she would define who a woman is today. She'd be a turf, is what you're saying, yes. Yeah, exactly. I don't think she meant to be a turf. She wasn't a kind <laughs> no, of proto-turf at the time that yeah. just seemed sort of, you know, uh, uh, straightforward. Yeah, no, but it, I mean, it these shows are, these some are of just the, the terms. Yes, exactly. Right, but it shows some of the pitfalls um, of, of these kind of essentialist accounts, right, where, where, where you always, where it is just actually hard to, def anyway, um, the, the, the point I want to make for you is that that strategic essentialism, again, the same way in which Said's sort of politicized form of discourse analysis becomes very influential today in how people uh, just, just practice politics in many progressive spaces particularly. There's a parallel thing that's, that goes on with uh, strategic essentialism. When you look at how people on social media and educational spaces today talk about identity. They say, you know, race is a social construct, right? It's completely fake. It's, it has no real biological basis and bearing. I think that's broadly right. When we say, but um, in order to, you know, be good progressives, you have to lean in to your racial identity. And in fact, in some of the most progressive uh, and elite private schools in the country, from you know Horace Mann to in LA to to, to Sidwell Friends in DC to uh, Dalton in New York, we're going to have these affinity groups where where teachers come into the classroom. Sometimes for kids as young as six or seven 
or aid and say, you're black, you go there, you're brown, you go there, you're, you're Asian American, you go there, you're white, you go there. And we want you to embrace the quote, quote, right racial identity, because that's what's required for you to be a good progressive activist. And so that is a form of strategic essentialism, right? Race is a social construct, but for all intents and purposes, we're going to be treating it not just as the fundamental category to analyze what's going on in America or the injustice of it persists in America, but also will encourage you to lean into those kind of identities in a way that someone like Foucault would have found to be quite troubling. Right. So I want to understand what was the relationship between these thinkers and the public at large or the media, the mainstream media, even policymakers. So yeah, because we're going to go on and talk about Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw and others, but just stopping right here with Foucault, Said, and Spivak, like how much, how, how were they known outside of academia? Like were people sitting around like at dinner parties and talking about their ideas, if not, you know, quoting them directly? Like was there presence in the culture? Yeah. I mean, Foucault writes uh, quite engagingly. And so his book sold pretty well. Uh, uh, no, Edward Said's Orientalism was a kind of bestseller and certainly was very widely assigned in universities. But Said also wrote for many years for, I believe, the London Review of Books and the New York Review of Books and so on. So it was a kind of, you know, certainly within sort of somewhat niche intellectual media, but, you know, uh, broad circulation niche intellectual media. He was a kind of major figure in, 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 in the 19... 80s and 1990s particularly. Spivak was probably uh, less widely read. She was, uh, you know, read a lot in academia, but but I think had less of a public presence beyond that. Um, so there are certainly people with uh, with some amount of public uh, presence and, and, and appeal, but they were not number one New York Times bestsellers. They did not, so far as I know about any of them, go on, you know, the late show, the late show with Stephen Colbert or, you know, whoever would have been at the time. They might Johnny have gone Carson. on Dick Cavett. Well, they probably t- did. Did Michelle Foucault go on Dick Cavett? I bet he did. I, I've, I would, you know I what? I feel it. like I would have seen that clip if it, if, 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 if it did perfect. exist, but, um, <laughs> uh, but perhaps he did. I don't know. I'm gonna look it up. Um, so yeah, I'm just trying to get a sense of like. So perhaps Dick Cavett, but not David Laderman. Let's let's no, let's of put course it not. No, no. <laughs> but what, like, what were the? But but what's interesting is that some of their successors, who by the way are, are much less sophisticated and more influential, but I think less worth taking seriously, you know, like Robin DiAngelo and and Ibram X Kendi, did go on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert and all of those kind of shows yes. over yes. the course of the last year. So there's a very interesting sort of post story about this. Yeah, so because uh, I want to understand kind of like what the on the ground effects of these thinkers were, because it's such a marked difference between what we see today. So you know, before social media came along, these ideas were really confined to academia, and maybe there was some kind of policy response. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like how relevant were these ideas at the time? You know, compared to now, anyway. Well, so so perhaps the way to talk about that is to sort of take the uh, next step and talk about critical race theory, uh, which is a intellectual tradition which starts to arise in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly in American law school. It too is in important ways 
institutionally and intellectually influenced by postmodernism. Critical race theory starts within uh, the sort of sub-discipline, I suppose, of critical legal studies, which is basically an attempt to apply postmodernism to the law. But uh, critical legal, uh, critical race theorists argue that the sort of postmodern reinterpretation of how the American law operates is not paying enough attention to race. And so hence the term critical race theory. Derek Bell is one of the founding figures in this. He uh, is an NAACP lawyer fighting for and arguing for the desegregation of schools and businesses and other institutions in the American South and beyond in the 1960s. But he starts to think that this is actually a profound mistake. He starts to say that in reality, the way in which desegregation uh, plays out in schools often doesn't actually advance the interests of his clients who want more immediate remedies and who want better schooling when some of those schools end up not being all that great. And so he embraces effectively the solution of schools that should be separate but truly equal. He's saying that civil rights lawyers should have been much more open to remedies that sort of channel a little bit more money into local schools, even if they remain segregated between uh, black schools and and non-black schools. So it's really a very fundamental attack on what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. And part of that is that he says Brown versus Board was not an idealistic ruling to bring American reality more in line with uh, the promises laid out in the Constitution. It was just in the interest of whites. That's what it was always about. And as a result, contemporary America was as racist as it's ever been. He said this until his death in the early 2000s, but America remained as racist uh, at the time as it had been in 1950 or 1850. The form of racism might have changed a little bit, but it was not more or less racist than it had been in the past. And, and one of the things you see here is that you know, uh, some people on, on, on the right today attack anything that is like as, as woke. I mean, you know, teaching students about the history of slavery is somehow woke according to them. And that's, of course, absurd. But that then inspires a kind of bad faith defense of critical race theory on parts of the left as, well, critical race theory is just wanting children to learn about slavery, right? Children learned in American schools about slavery, uh, at least outside of the most conservative areas of the South, uh, before the rise of critical race theory. And critical race theory goes far beyond just wanting to be aware of the serious racial injustices in American history and, and the American present. It is from the beginning fundamentally an attack on the black liberal tradition, which defines everybody from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King to, for that matter, uh, Barack Obama. And then in, in, in the next step, you have Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a student of Derek Bell's, uh, coin the terms of uh, intersectionality. Uh, which starts off as a sensible recognition that, you know, in a factory of General Motors in Michigan, for example, uh, black men were no longer being discriminated against at the time and white women were no longer being discriminated against at the time, but black women were being discriminated against. And they couldn't get legal uh, relief for that, remedies for that, because uh, neither of the characteristics they had, that of being black or that of being female, were covered uh, sorry, but each of the characteristics they had, that of being black and that of being female, was covered by civil rights legislation, but not the intersection between those two different things, which actually explained the fact of their discrimination. A perfectly reasonable insight that, that I think was, was, was on the money and, and helped to reform how American courts think about these issues. But that idea has been radicalized and taken further by many of Crenshaw's interpreters to basically say, if I don't stand at the same intersection as you, 
for example, because you're a woman and I'm not, I'm incapable of understanding you. That's really just a fundamental barrier in how we're able to communicate. And so you take those themes and again, you see how today they become very influential. The the, the belief in the permanence of racism and homophobia and all these other kinds of things um, that is based in in, in Bellsford, the rejection of any kind of universal value, neutral rule that aims to live up to the equal treatment of people and the embrace of a society in which how you're treated will be deeply dependent on the group into which you're born. And then the deep skepticism about our ability to have political solidarity with each other on the basis of sharing political ideals where I have to defer to you because I don't even understand the nature of your oppression. Just, I know I've been going on for a little while, but Megan, the original question you had was, how does the sort of perception of this change in the public with critical race theory? And and I wanted to get to Crenshaw because she writes a really interesting paper uh, that is published in, I believe, 2011 or 2012, uh, reflecting on the 30th anniversary of critical race theory. And she says, look, it's wonderful that we have as influential research programs, you know, some of the leading law schools now have now have professors who who teach critical race theory and there's all of this scholarly research in other disciplines and other departments of the university as well. We have these great insights about the world. But it's ultimately a pessimistic article saying, especially with the election of Barack Obama, who rejects the key tenets of critical race theory, the idea that our kinds of thinking might have a broader public purchase is just deeply unrealistic. We will not be able to have real influence beyond the academy and a few small activist spaces. But that then turns out to be deeply wrong over the course of the next 10 years. So as late as 2010, something like Crenshaw, for good reason, is really skeptical, somewhat downhearted, downcast about the amount of influence the tradition has. And it's really in the decade after that when it starts to have a tremendous public purchase. Yeah, I was. I thought it was interesting that you use the word radicalized when you talk about how her ideas have been kind of transposed because I see it as watered down, right? So it's like, you know, and this, this, you know, this intersectional theory that's, I've, this is something I've written a lot about and I wrote about it in my book. I mean, it came, you're absolutely right. Like as a, as a legal framework, it was quite useful. And it actually came about regarding a, a lawsuit at General Motors. Um, there were the women working in the factories were exactly being being discriminated against as as black people and as women. And it somehow just it morphed into exactly what you're saying, this kind of ambiguous, ambient kind of like feminism that sort of has this flavor of race consciousness. And it's it's just it's just very vague. And yeah, it's funny that as of as recently as as 2011, Kimberly Crenshaw was uh, sort of giving up on this ever gaining any traction in the general culture. But yeah, she should have. Yeah, have and, and one sort of the last section of, of of part one of my book is called "Careful What You Wish For," because I think Foucault would hate a lot of uh, what has become of his ideas. You know, the, the idea of a panopticon, but he's really afraid of of this world in which you might always be observed and because you're afraid of being punished for misbehavior, you self-discipline and anticipatory obedience. You don't even do a thing that might be punished because you're scared of that happening. I think that's sort of a world of Twitter today. You know, somebody like Spivak comes to disown the term of strategic essentialism because she sees how it's used by the right as well. And she 
um, you know, referring to sort of or, or making a pun on tea wallers who sell tea in, in the streets of India, she sort of uh, complains about the identity wallers at American universities that, uh, that are really humorless about these kinds of things and impose this kind of orthodoxy. Um, and, and Crenshaw, who is much less critical of, of today's identity politics, uh, does also complain at one point, you know, about seeing various people talk about intersectionality and saying, oh, I wonder, that's an interesting way of thinking about intersectionality. I wonder whose intersectionality that is. And then she looks in the footnote and she sees herself quoted and she says, that's not my intersectionality. That's not what I meant. So there is this sort of way in which, you know, the thinkers that we're talking about, I do think are fundamentally, in various ways to varying extents, but fundamentally opposed to the liberal tradition, fundamentally opposed to the kind of values that I ultimately believe in. But they're smart and sophisticated scholars who you can read and learn something from. Then comes, and this is what I chronicle in the second part of the book, the real vulgarization and popularization of these ideas into the form that we know uh, today and, and that I think is sort of even more perturbing. We're going to pause here for a brief message. Hi, it's Megan. I hope you're enjoying this conversation, and I promise I'll get right back to it. But you may have noticed that there's something missing in this podcast. Ads. I don't run them. I don't do host reads, and I decided a long time ago that I will not run programmatic ads. They're simply too disruptive. Not our style around here. But that means that the only support I get for this podcast comes from paying subscribers. This thing is entirely my own. It's not affiliated with any organization or secret cabal of funders. I do it because I love it, and I'm committed to bringing you candid, respectful, surprising conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. That's why I'm asking you to consider becoming a paying subscriber to this podcast's Substack page, which you can find at megandom.substack.com. For as little as $7 a month, you can get bonus content nearly every week, access to my new writing, the chance to participate in comments, and a lot more. If you join at the founding members level, you can meet me almost every month for a listener Zoom hangout where we talk about the show and discuss how to pronounce my last name. To do that, go to megandom or megandaum.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M and join us. It helps me out tremendously. So thank you. And now back to the interview. All right, you've laid all of this out really nicely. And, um, you know, I always, every time the panopticon concept comes up, it's, I'm struck by how prescient that was just with regard to how social media embodies that concept. I mean, this is, this is Michel Foucault, obviously, you know, built out a lot of his ideas from this concept, but it came from Jeremy Bentham in the 18th century, I think. But like just this idea that everybody is watching everything we do at all times and that this kind of surveillance way of being in the world, that is where we have landed. And so let's talk about how all these thinkers, all these ideas that were swirling around, how they came to sort of funnel through this very narrow channel in, into social media and in our, in our modern discourse, because you and I would not be having this conversation about these ideas if they weren't having real world effects all the time, 24 hours a day with, with real social consequences and, and personal consequences and professional consequences for people. So how do we get here? Yeah. And so, you know, if so far we've talked to basically part one of my book, which is now where do these ideas actually come from? What is the real sort of 
intellectual academic origin of him. Then there's this kind of puzzle, right? Why is it that in 2010, Crenshaw is like, well, we've had a great career, but like, sadly, nobody's going to listen to us. And by 2020, <laughs> you know, these, these, these books inspired by the sort of popularized and vulgarized version of these ideas, like Ibram Kennedy's How to Be an Anti-Racist, or like Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility, are like on the top of a bestseller list for the better part of a year. And they're on all these major TV shows and the corporations and um, nonprofit institutions and, and, and politicians to speak the language of this. How does that happen? And that's, that's the question I try to answer in the second part of the book. And as you're pointing out, I think the first step in that really is social media. It really is the way in which these ideas become adapted to social media. Um, and in particular, the way in which social media, which was meant to connect us to people who are far away, to see what we have in common with those who you know, are very different from us, actually incentivizes people to double down on identity in all kinds of ways. And, and Tumblr, as you mentioned, is one of the early platforms on which that happens, which actually, in that sense, I think was more important than Facebook or, or Twitter. Yeah, And that's because there's a kind of minimum group size you need to get an identity group off the ground. So in an offline world, before social media, you know, you're in a, in a, in a high school, you know, perhaps you're uh, a jock or perhaps you're a nerd or perhaps you're a theater kid or perhaps, you know, if you're in a, in a, in a, in a relatively tolerant area, you are part of a gay straight alliance and you sort of define yourself, you know, by, by your sexual orientation and so on. There's a limit to how small these groups can be because you need an in-person community and, you know, there's just not that many people around who can share in your niche identity. By the time the Tumblr comes along, one of the key innovations it has is a tagging system where you can find people who tag themselves by certain kinds of terms or ideas, you know, all across the world and certainly across the United States. And that allows a kind of experimentation, a proliferation of a proliferation of different identity categories that would just have been too marginal and too rare before to actually command sort of enough members to be a real group. And so in Tumblr, you start to have all of this experimentation, for example, with new kind of gender identities that really take off over the course of the next 10 years, but also other kinds of racial and so on identifications. And then you need something to hold that all together. If you have this platform in which everybody defines themselves by some identity group, but those obviously are not the same, you need some kind of a language and operating system to broker the peace between these different kinds of tribes. And that becomes a popularized form of the identity synthesis with sort of, you know, if you say something insulting, that's basically the same as violence. Um, you have to have extreme deference to people who stand a different intersection of identities because you're just really not able to understand them. Um, to be a good activist is to fight against all forms of oppression, and that means that you have to uh, agree with the accounts of members of different identity groups about what is required for their political battle and all of those kinds of ideas. They then start to go more mainstream in a series of steps. You have a kind of written form of this um, evolving uh, Ford catalog, and then later on platforms like uh, everydayfeminism.com, oh which is gosh. where I kind of... Everyday feminism. <laughs> I know. I, I want to stop you for a second here because I, I want people to really remember what Tumblr was like, or if they didn't experience it at the time, like get get a sense of this. So you quote Catherine D, who's um, a culture writer, who's talked a lot about Tumblr and written about it a lot. She's really 
smart and interesting person. So I, I just want to want a quote because I think she sums this up pretty concisely. She says, Tumblr became a place for people to fantasize and build upon ideas about real identities. Most of the people involved had 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 little lived experience as these identities. Okay. And these were kids mostly, right? Teenagers. Is that is that fair to say? So Yeah, I think the, the, the main user base was 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 teenagers, perhaps some early in the early people in the early 20s. Yeah, and maybe maybe girls in particular. So you write, as this culture came into its own, Tumblr developed wondrously protean properties. A heartfelt manifesto or even a casual joke could become the kernel of an entirely new identity. Tumblr was where new ways of describing one's own sexual orientation, like demisexual, new ways of referring to one's ethnic identity, like Latinx, and new ways of thinking about one's gender, like Libra gender, and I... I, that was the first time I'd heard that, first reached a large audience. And so I just think that you did a really nice job of, of summing that up. So let's just, uh, yeah, remember, people, that's what was going on on Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is kind of amazing to dive back into these materials because they, I was sort of conscious of them at the time. I was actually on Tumblr with some really boring blog about European politics, but I sort of, as a result, I kind of knew the platform. It was just the easiest way to publish when you were a nobody at the time, you know? Uh, but it's interesting to go back to to those things. I mean, I find sort of the content on everydayfeminism.com that I stumbled upon in sort of early 2015, I think, to be really telling in that way as well, because I sort of recognized some of these themes from the more sophisticated treatments of them that I'd seen in seminar rooms and so on as a PhD student. But now suddenly they were sort of memefied, you know, in a kind of BuzzFeed form, which I sort of recognized, wow, this can actually, you know, spread in a new kind of way. So, you know, people of color can't cure your racism, but here are five things you can do instead. You know, four thoughts yeah. for your yoga teacher who thinks appropriation is fun. Um, <laughs> you call it professionalism. I call it oppression in a three-piece suit. I think the, the, you know, the best of them is, so you're a breast man. Here are three reasons that could be sexist. Um, yeah. So you see how... I mean, it's these- like the onion. I mean, you can't, like, uh, when I... Uh, yeah, but by 2015, I think everybody was pretty... Uh, pretty hip to what was going on. But like, if you had, if that had been published in 2010, it would have been like on a satirical site. Like it really would have. Right. And even in 2015, I think this stuff had not, you know, was not yet publishable in the New York Times. I think that came... Oh, these ideas. Yes, right. Because it was a joke, right? It was still like an in-joke about people who were PC or something like that. So by 2015, you already had some of the more sort of high-minded elements of the identity synthesis being published in the New York Times. So there was a really interesting analysis that shows that terms like white privilege and uh, microaggression and so on really entered the vernacular of the New York Times and the Washington Post before the election of Donald Trump. There weren't a reaction to it. They predated it. Yes. But this sort of stuff couldn't be yet, right? But then what happened is that um, stuff started spreading more for social media. So when when Vox was founded in 2013, most of the reads they got for the article still came from the website. And so the average article had to actually appeal to a lot of different people. Whereas already by 2015, 2016, most of the reads came through social networks. And on social networks, people were connected to each other through identity groups. And so suddenly you could have this radical shift in the output of a place like Vox from a kind of like technocratic liberalism, right? Like here, policy debates that, you know, the New York Times doesn't do enough because they have sort of stupid horse race coverage, um, horse race coverage of politics, to a much more 
you know, first person identity driven, you know, here is, you know, the challenges facing Asian Americans in the United States or something like that. And if you went to the website, most of the articles might not interest you because nine out of 10 of them addressed identity groups of which you're not a part. But as long as one out of 10 people started sharing that within those identity-based networks and social media, cumulatively, they could get a lot of reads. And then the breakout stars from those kinds of semi-mainstream uh, publications and websites were hired by the New York Times and Washington Post. And by the end of the decade, you could read things that, you know, slightly more high-minded, but basically reads like those onion slash everydayfeminism.com articles in the pages of, of, of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Yeah, and it, it, it's no coincidence that this came at the same time as there were massive budget cuts to these news organizations, newspapers were failing, and it was a whole lot cheaper to run opinion pieces than, you know, reported pieces. It's a lot it's a lot cheaper to have 10 op-eds than send somebody to Afghanistan to do reporting. And they were desperate for traffic, and this was giving them traffic. It was also, I think, in some important ways, undermining the brand, but, you know, and their credibility, but, but the stuff went, went viral, in part because some people loved it, and in part because a lot of people hitched it. Right. And so let's talk about these generational cohorts that came up going to liberal arts colleges, elite universities, becoming steeped in these kinds of pedagogies and bringing them into the workforce. I, I don't think this can be understated. And it, it seems reductive on some level, but it's just a fact that we have in, in these institutions massive generational divides. We have older generations who are like much more sympathetic to kind of kind of enlightenment kind of liberalism, really at odds with their rank and file, who think that it's their job to introduce this kind of identity sensibility into the into the workplace. I mean, we saw that happen at the New York Times. We saw it happen with with James Bennett. We see it happen all over the place. So like you you're generationally you're kind of in the middle here. Like I, I think you were born in 1982. So like <laughs> what do you what do you have to say for your group? Yeah, it's part of uh being the uh you know, I, I'm 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 European, but I live in America. I, you know, whatever. I I never, I never quite yeah. belong anywhere. You're, you're intersectional. I'm, I'm kind of a, a public writer. I'm, you know, I'm yeah. I'm always at the at the least favored intersection. <laughs> no, but uh, and I guess generationally, you know, technically I'm a millennial, but but not really. Um. So so no, I I, I agree. But yeah, look, this is a, a key mechanism that's sort of ran in parallel to the creation of this you know popularized idea. Of, of the identity synthesis, which then really becomes crystallized in the thought of people like Candy and D'Angelo. And then in, in, in parallel with that, all these people have been steeped in these ideas in um, you know, fancy uh, college campuses um, from faculty and courses they take, but also from the administrators that really impose them in various trainings. Uh, they go out and fan out into the workforce. And I call this sort of slightly jokingly the short march through the institutions you know, there's an idea that a you know, Rudi Dutke, student activist, had in the early 1970s in Germany, you know, go and take jobs in these mainstream institutions and, you know, uh, take them over from the inside and perhaps sabotage them. That's not what people do deliberately. This is not a student in 2010 saying, I'm going to join Google in order to make Google, quote unquote, work. But, uh, you know, they, they steepen these ideas in college. And then in great numbers, they enter these institutions. And they use the internal mechanisms of employee activism 
to ask pointed questions when there's town halls, to uh, you know push back against things that they don't like on Slack, to use the fact that these ideas have become much more mainstream in order to plant stories and uh, mainstream media outlets sometimes that CEOs start to be very worried about over the course of the 2010s, right? And that becomes particularly influential institutions that share three attributes. Number one, that they uh, overproportionately hire uh, young people and or people from sort of elite college campuses where these ideas are more prevalent. Is that like, were they hiring young people at higher rates than in the past? Like, no, I think it's about, uh, no, I think it's about a tipping point of how prevalent these ideas come to be on campus. So, okay. you know, in, in 1995, you might encounter them a little bit, but they're still quite marginal, even with and it was only that, right, exactly. It was only the, God, the humanities majors. Yes, exactly. It was yeah, only exactly. By Some 2010, we become much more prevalent. And so at that time, if you're a humanities major, you're likely deeply steeped in these ideas. But even if you're not, you know, everything you learn about the humanities yeah. and the social sciences, a lot of what you learn about the humanities and social sciences might be in this vein, you know, when you have distribution requirements, right, in liberal arts education. So even an engineering major might be influenced by these things. In fact, the engineering major might be even more influenced by these things because rather than having a more sophisticated, deeper engagement with these ideas, they only get the <laughs> superficial part of it. And there's a huge yeah. growth of a bureaucratic state within universities, right? I mean, the influence of administrators over campus life just explodes from 1990 to 2010. And we know that those administrators are way more left-leaning than faculty members even. So that's, oh, I think, really? one of the sort of... Yeah. And so, I mean, even when you ask about questions like free speech and so on, you know, faculty members are left-leaning by 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 something like a six or seven to one. Administrators are left-leaning by like 19 or 20 to one. And they're also more specifically likely to embrace supposedly left-wing ideas that are uh, in conflict with liberalism, like a rejection of free speech. Oh, is that because they like went to like teachers' colleges and they they have ed- their their field is education? Like, what? Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think look, if you're a faculty member, you're hired for some form of uh, scholarly output and expertise. And in some fields, you know, that may come with an ideological litmus test. Uh, but in other fields, it won't, right? I mean, if you're hired as a chemistry professor, you know, really, you know, your your ability to publish in specialized journals in chemistry is the main consideration. And as long as you haven't made yourself unpopular by saying forbidden things on Twitter, you know, that's going to to lead to, to your hiring. Now, you're in a very progressive milieu, so you're likely to be progressive, but you're not selected for your progressivism. I do think that at this point, you know, to be hired in any kind of position of responsibility as an administrator in the American campuses, you have to very proactively pay lip service to progressive orthodoxy. So, so part of it is hiring, part of it may be other kinds of selection mechanisms as to who becomes an administrator versus a professor. I'm, I'm not quite sure that I can fully explain it. Okay, oh, that's so interesting. I, I really never put that together. I just always assumed that administrators were like professors who got promoted or something. I don't know. I, I, I never thought about it, kind of like going from a lawyer to a judge, but okay. Well, that may be true of the most prestigious administrators. So university presidents usually used yeah. to be tenured professors. But at this point, you know, the, the, just there's more administrators than, than faculty members and, and, and the great majority of them do not hold PhDs. Right. And they right. certainly were never professors. 
Yeah. Okay. And and going back to this workplace dynamic. So this is another thing I never really fully teased out. So it, it sounds like in, in the past you you've always had young people being radicalized. I mean, we had the hippie movement. We had all all those people, you know, free love, and then they went into the workplace, and reality hit them in the face, and they became yuppies in the eighties, right? So maybe is the difference that because we have these social media channels and there are all these levers for very young people to pull in in the workplace that they don't have that experience of just having to get with a program and do what's necessary to get the work done and and get their paycheck. Like they actually have an enormous amount of power that that is unprecedented. Yeah. So there's there's a few different disanalogies for that interesting. One of them is that I think just the share of young employees who are deeply steeped in these ideas is just much higher. I just don't think that there was, you know, you know, there was a cohort of ultra-leftist students in the 1960s who was obviously very influential. But, you know, most of the courses they were taught would not have agreed with, with, with the core ideas. Right. And so I think it's sort of the proportions are a little bit different. Another very important thing, I think, is that um, there always used to be an establishment. I mean, part of what 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 used to be fun about being left wing is that you're rebelling against an establishment that disagrees with you. And there's perhaps something healthy about that dynamic, right? An instinctively conservative establishment. There's many things wrong with the establishment in America of the 1960s, but an instinctively sort of a, a, an establishment that says, "Well, let's hold on to some of the good things in our institutions." And then young people coming in and saying, "But here's what's unjust, and let's fix those things." Today, most people, certainly decision makers at Google and at the ACLU and uh, in many congressional offices and so on, they don't think of themselves as the establishment, even though they are. They think of themselves as kind of left-leaning rebels, right? And so there's just nobody there who can be a counterweight that perhaps is responsive to some of the good critiques, but is also able to say, well, these practices actually are worth defending. So I think that's just a fundamental difference. The establishment used to think of itself as kind of instinctively conservative and therefore was willing to play the bad guy to, you know, a 22-year-old who's making critiques, whereas now I think the people who are in charge are much more vulnerable to capture because they don't know how to uh, explain, you know, their own values in a way we can also make sense of why some of these ideas are actually wrong-headed. And that's a big difference. And then there's some institutional mechanisms. So one interesting element of this, for example, is that uh, you have a real change in how diversity trainings operate. And they go from a kind of common humanity approach saying, hey, don't be prejudiced against each other. You have a lot in common. You must treat each other with respect. If not, you might have legal trouble. To saying, no, 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 um, you're really deeply defined by the identity group from which you're from. And all of you are actually racist. And you know, even Coca-Cola starts to have these trainings inspired by Robin D'Angelo, uh, in which one of the slides reads, you know, you know, ways to be less white, right? But once some corporations take those kinds of things on board, there's a legal reality where a, an effective defense against a racial discrimination lawsuit, for example, is to say that you engage in the same kind of precautionary practices as key industry competitors or key industry peers. And so once one kind of company embraces some of those ideas internally, it becomes a legal risk for other companies not to follow suit. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so uh, have you brought us up to the, the present moment now? Is this the part where you say, um, here's what we can do about it? 
other than subscribe to people's sub stacks and listen to their podcasts? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I think that Donald Trump does have something to do with this as well, because once he's elected, the sort of space for pushing back against these ideas on the left evaporates because he does pose a genuine threat to people for understandable reasons, but those are the kinds of conditions under which people often become uh, sort of incapable of listening to in-group critics and saying, if you are basically on the left, but you think that perhaps Robin DiAngelo and Ibrahim Kendi haven't really understood the world very well, you're not just a well-intentioned person, you're a secret ally of Donald Trump, right? And that's the kind of atmosphere that really arises on big parts of the left after Trump wins. So I think in that sense, Trump was very, very damaging not just directly, but in this indirect way as well. But that, I think, broadly gets us up to the present day. And and yeah, look, there's, there's, there's two you know, big parts of the book that we haven't quite talked about, where people have to buy the identity trap to, 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 to think through. But one of them is looking at the main applications of these ideas, to everything from cultural appropriation, to free speech, to standpoint theory, to the sort of progressive separatism we now see in many educational spaces. Now, really walk readers through why these powerful ideas that are so shaping of our institutions today are, are, are deeply misguided and why they will actually make it harder to build a just society, to overcome injustice, and to pursue the kinds of goals that we should have as, as individuals and as a society more broadly. And the other is to really try to formulate how people who believe in the basic values of liberal democracy should respond to this critique. Because what I think is missing so often in conversations today is that ability to say, hey, uh, that stuff on the left really is misguided, really is going wrong. But you know what? The, the solution is not to agree with Ron DeSantis about banning certain forms of instruction in, in public schools or even public universities in his case. It's not to give up on liberalism and become a kind of reactionary on the right. There are forms of really uh, principled, longstanding uh, philosophical liberalism that have allowed us to make giant progress towards a more just country and a more just world, even for obviously serious injustices remain. And we need to double down on those in order to build a better country. Speaking of that, you have been at the forefront of people who are trying to forge new and wider paths. You started Persuasion almost exactly three years ago, the summer of 2020, when everybody started their podcast. <laughs> <laughs> myself included. You were a signer of the Harper's Letter. You were very vocal. Um, you, you were one of the people who was talking very publicly about why you signed it. You had um, debates with people who, you know, somehow thought that the Harper's Letter was a some kind of Nazi dog whistle. That was always confusing to me. Um, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, how Nazis have talked. They have always said we want more of a culture of free speech. That's exactly what Nazis have always yeah. said. No, I'm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Backslash well, S for sarcasm. I know, and I don't mean to be, yeah, and I don't mean to be, be well, you know, here's the thing about the Harper's letter, and I don't want to, I'm more interested in talking about persuasion, but, you know, it was so, I was also a signatory, it was an open letter about free speech and debate, it, uh, it appeared in, in, Har, in the magazine of Har, Harper's Magazine in, in 2020, it was pretty anodyne in, in my view, it was just um, a statement about expressing a discomfort with the way things were going in the political and public and cultural discourse signed by about 150 artists and thinkers and others. And uh, the the response to those who opposed it or kind of 
were claimed they opposed it or just were wanting to take the position of opposing it was that it was just a kind of temper tantrum about cancel culture. I'm, I'm curious how one responds to that. How did you respond to that? <laughs> um, well, I mean, part of that was to do some reporting to show that, uh, particularly in that moment, there really were unfair, uh, uh, you know, firings and forms of collective punishment uh, that were just deeply unjust. I mean, one of them that that sticks in my mind is a guy by the name of Emmanuel Cafferty, who is actually Latino. He's sort of one quarter Irish, so his name sounds very Irish, but 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 three of his uh, grandparents came from uh, Mexico. And, you know, he was in his work truck and he had his hand dangling out of a truck. He's a completely apolitical guy, has never voted. And some random person thought that he was making the OK symbol, I mean, the symbol that historically people always meant to sort of indicate OK, which on some, you know, originating in a dumb joke on, you know, 4chan, on some corners of the internet has come to be thought of as a white supremacist gesture. Yeah, so I, I, did, I hadn't known that, so I'm glad I got Yeah, and most people that. wouldn't know I'm that. I'm not going right? to make the same I mean, mistake. Um, but but anyway, so so you know this guy loses the best job he ever had because somebody misinterprets sort of the way his hand happens to be dangling out of a window of his work truck as a white supremacist gesture. And even though he can you know very clearly show that he has no associations like that, he himself is not white. You know this public utility company is actually publicly owned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know fires him from job. So part of it is to say, look, you know. This is not helping to build a better society. And by the way, it's driving people into the, into the arms of people like Donald Trump that generally are a danger to an inclusive democracy uh, like the United States. So that's one kind of answer. But the other answer is just, you know, I- I'm surprised how quickly the left has given up on the value of free speech and uh, not just denies that there are limitations to the extent to which we can actually speak our minds in America. Um, It's in denial about the fact that some very left-wing people uh, who I have lunch with say, as a matter of course, after making some anodyne remark, of course I would never say this publicly, and that that should (laughs) really worry us about the kind of uh, culture that, 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 that we've built. But the more fundamental point that many of them now Actually, you know, because some people like Elon Musk and so on sort of invoke free speech in, in, in insincere ways, right, they have come to think of free speech as a right-wing value. And so I have a whole chapter in which I defend the value of a law of, of legal guarantees for free speech, but also of a culture of free speech. And the, the fundamental reason for free speech is not that we get great things from having free speech. That is the argument that John Stuart Mill has made historically, and I think he's right about that. But to me, the even more fundamental reason is the terrible things that happen when we don't have free speech. And one of those, by definition, is that it empowers the powerful. Who is going to make decisions about what you can say and what will get censored? It's not going to be the dean of Smith College. It might be true on the campus of Smith College, but in the much more important national playground, it's not going to be the people who are themselves super, super progressive. It is often going to people who already have a lot of power and who deeply uh, disagree with, with the left mm-hmm. and, and with progressives. And that is, again, Frederick Douglass called free speech the dread of tyrants because of that recognition. Free speech was always the tool of last resorts for the people who are weak and vulnerable and genuinely marginalized 
in society. And so to think that people who care about free speech, who care about sustaining a culture of free speech, who want to make sure that people can keep their jobs and their livelihoods, even if they happen to offend their boss, but they are somehow on the side of a dominant rather than on the side of a vulnerable. It's just, I think, a profound misunderstanding of the role that free speech has historically played in allowing us to write the genuine injustices you know, of, of American history and the history of other democracies. So tell us about persuasion. Um, this is a, a platform. It addresses, it's a direct response to everything you just described. It's a podcast. It's um, an online journal. It's a community. My understanding is that you this you were thinking about this long before the pandemic or summer of 2020 or anything like that. So what, what were the germs of that project? Yeah, I mean, the germs of a project is that, you know, I'm a philosophical liberal, um, uh, you know, and I defend the ability of philosophical liberalism to take seriously things like discrimination of minority groups and guide a way towards a better future in 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 this book. That's all in part four. Um, but I, I I also started to recognize with the rise of left wing populism like that of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, but particularly right wing populism like Trump in the United States and Modi in India and Erdogan in Turkey and. Uh, Kaczynski in Poland, that these values which we've taken for granted in many relatively stable democracies for a very long time were now under very significant attack. And that there was, uh, that it was time to have institutions that are explicitly devoted towards defending those liberal values against post-liberal uh, uh, adversaries uh, on, on, on the left and also on the right. And precisely because we've sort of taken for granted for so long that these kind of values would at some level be the operating system of institutions like Harvard University or like the New York Times or uh, like major think tanks in the United States, there's not really any fighting magazine or fighting institutions that are really devoted to defending them. And so, you know, when, when, when I saw just how embattled these basic liberal norms and ideas and practices were, um, I sort of pulled the trigger on founding this this magazine, this community. And it's been wonderful. I mean, we have many tens of thousands of subscribers. We try to provide orientation in a world and for people who uh, are concerned about all the things that this conversation has been about, but who also think that post-liberals on the right, uh, like Ron DeSantis uh, or their intellectual supporters, uh, really get something profoundly wrong about how to build a more free and tolerant society. Um, and I think we're making a small contribution to reinventing liberalism for the 21st century, for making it you know, a vibrant uh, set of ideas and principles which can guide uh, us to shore in pretty choppy waters. Yeah. What is it like for you as a professor to be involved in this kind of thing? Are you, you're, you're a professor at Johns Hopkins. As far as I know, you don't have the kind of dissident uh, stink on you <laughs> the way some others might, rightly or wrongly. Like, are, are you seen as a kind of renegade or or dangerous figure? Are you a hero? Like, wh what is it like being in an academic setting while also engaging in these pursuits? You know, I, I've been very lucky so far. I have had a few unpleasant experiences or unpleasant moments with, um, you know, but but I, 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 there's been no sort of concerted attempt to to cancel me, uh, you know, and I have a very nice job. 
Um, and, and one of the things that I always say is that the kids are all right in the sense that their assumptions are much more deeply steeped in the identity synthesis than mine. And I think that, you know, some of the things that they've been taught in other courses as the objective truth is actually wrong. Um, they haven't really been given the, the means, the materials to question those things. But they are, if you create the right kind of atmosphere in the classroom, also very open to discussing and debating uh, these ideas. I actually assigned parts of this book in a course. I was reluctant to assign my own reading. But, oh, but I yeah. Thought I'd, I'd do that as, a, as an experiment. I didn't make them buy the book. It was, you know, free for them. <laughs> uh, and I obviously also um, assigned many of the texts that disagree with me, right? So I assigned Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and a bunch of people saying that cultural appropriation is under all circumstances a bad thing or people criticizing free speech, as well as, you know, critiques of those uh, texts. And, uh, and in that circumstance, students were very willing to and very grateful to actually engage with these ideas in a in a serious and 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 open-minded way. But you certainly feel where the power lies in these kinds of institutions today. You see it in the classroom where students are very willing to engage as long as there isn't one or two students who share an intersection of two attitudes, which is one to be very, very far left on these on these kind of identity issues. But two more importantly, that they don't have very nice personalities and um, students know that they're willing <laughs> to the worst you know, distort. Kind of intersection. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, that they're willing to distort what they might have said in the classroom and sort of shame them afterwards in social media and take uh. out of context things they said. And then you really have trouble having this conversation. Students are very afraid of the, the social sanctions that they might face under those circumstances. But it doesn't usually happen, but I have had it happen and students explain to me that's why they're reluctant to talk in those situations. And of course, I feel it a little bit academically in the sense that, you know, when parts of a MAGA crowd send me, you know, nasty threats and emails or nasty tweets uh, because I criticize people like Donald Trump, it's not very pleasant, but I never worry that, uh, you know, my dean is somehow going to uh, reprimand me because no, some you, MAGA idiots. No, you get promoted. Idiots, exactly. But when I... Uh, you know, upset people who disagree with me from the left, I feel the social opprobrium and I do worry about potential consequences in a, in a, in a rather different way. Yeah, well, that's the thing, too, that always frustrates me when people say, oh, well, why are you uh, complaining about the censoriousness of the left when the, the right is so much worse? I mean, the obvious answer is that if you are on the left or even in the center and the MAGA right goes after you, that only increases your bona fides, right? I mean, and, and vice versa, right? I mean, in exactly the same way if, you know, your job is, um, uh, you know, with Turning Point USA or something like that, you can't afford to upset the MAGA crowd. But, right. you know, if, 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 if every quote-unquote woke person in the country goes after you, that's something you get to, you know, boast to your employer about, right? So, so these sort of ways of intimidating people work in the same way on the left and the right. In some ways, they're more brutal on the right, but a lot more institutions are, are, are under the influence on the left than the right, right? Yeah. Which is to say yeah. that the right has a rich network of explicitly ideological institutions. Um, and those are, have significant influence in, this, in, in our society. But what the left has on top of these, uh, it has a little bit less of that perhaps, but it has all of these institutions where to all intents and purposes, uh, even for the ideologically neutral on paper, the governing ideology 
is uh, uh, left leaning. Um, and so, you know, Johns Hopkins University is politically neutral as an entity, right? As a, it's a 501c3. It, it's not supposed to have a kind of political purpose in that sense. Uh, but certainly in my context, I'm, you know, worried about consolation attempts from the left potentially. Again, I, I'm not saying that this has happened to me or that I'm sort of deeply traumatized or anything like that. But I'm aware that that could become very dangerous to me, uh, whereas attempts to cancel me from the right simply don't apply to me in the same kind of way. It might be different if you're a professor at the University of Florida right now. And that's one of the reasons why I'm no more sympathetic to, to Ron DeSantis uh, than I am to, to some of those cancelers on the left. Yeah. Well, uh, Yash, I'm going to keep you for a, a little over time. We're going to talk about what we often talk about here, which is how you feel about being the age that you are. And we're going to talk about happiness and... Um, just whether or not things get better. Uh, but before we do that, I, I guess like I, I'm curious as you've thought about this stuff and, you know, been really deeply engaged in all of these issues, do you have thoughts about the, the, the sort of immediate political future for, for this country, the, the election, anything like that? You, or maybe you have no thoughts you haven't given, it hasn't even occurred to you. It has. I've never thought about it. I mean, you know, I, I, <laughs> Sorry I've been writing and I, I like to say that I'm a democracy hipster. I was worried about the doom of democracy <laughs> before it was cool. And you know, Yes, yes. I, I sort of, you know, I mean, a lot of my writing has been on this stuff. Um, look, I'm, I'm worried. I mean, I, 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 I think that barring uh, unforeseen circumstances, um, uh, uh, Donald Trump is going to be the 2024 presidential nominee for the Republican Party. I think uh, it is, you know, I, I have no hesitation about who I will personally vote for. I think it is very, very obvious that Joe Biden has been a more responsible president and uh, led a more decent administration than Donald Trump has or Donald Trump would in the future, because I think a second administration would, for a number of reasons, uh, be, be worse than the first. Yeah. But I'm, I don't have great confidence that Biden will beat Trump, and that is because he too has some weaknesses. I mean, he's visibly... Uh, physically and visibly mentally old. His vice president is less popular than he is, and he's not particularly popular. And even though, uh, you know, certainly sort of, I think Joe Biden's personal uh, demeanor um, and uh, uh, actions uh, are on a much higher moral plane than those of Donald Trump, uh, you know, the fact that there's going to be an ongoing investigation into the criminal actions of his son and the fact that he's at least allowed the exception of, you know, his son having some amount of influence over him, which warranted him uh, g gaining large paychecks from, you know, pretty corrupt companies, he is all going to muddy the waters in 2024, right? It's in, 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 in the eyes of a lot of people, it's not going to be a very clear moral choice. I think it is a clear moral choice in my mind. Um, I, I don't love either candidate, but... Um, you know, I, I, I would rather have 20 years of Joe Biden in office than four years of Donald Trump. But this is going to be a really hard campaign to run and really hard campaign to win. And that's, by the way, one more reason to stand up against some of the least popular and most toxic and most substantively counterproductive ideas on the left. Perhaps one you know, thing to end this, this, this public part of the podcast before you all subscribe and pay Megan some money to hear me whining about my middle age um, <laughs> is that... I don't see this book as having a different concern as the ones before. I was worried, even if you go back to my first book about the rise of populism, the people versus democracy, 
about some things like the left giving up on free speech as pages on that, even in that context. And I continue to be very worried about those right-wing populists and even for these ideas that are sort of superficially uh, in opposition to each other, and in some ways substantively in opposition to each other, politically speaking, one is the yin to, to the other's yang. One of the reasons why Donald Trump continues to worry me in terms of his ability to win elections next year is that so much of the left and so much of the image of a Democratic Party is captured by some of these uh, misguided ideas. And so to stand up to those ideas is not in conflict with standing up to people like Trump. It's actually part of the same political project. No, I know. That's what I keep saying. I care. I, I criticize because I care. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I also, I think a lot about if Trump is reelected, what the effect, uh, the, the American psyche, like what will the effects be? I, I feel like people are just going to like just silo themselves further and effectively decide that politics doesn't matter. I mean, I can see myself doing that. I, I want to, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that in the bonus, but just you, you really have to decouple your feelings and even your thoughts from the political process in a situation like that, I would imagine. But anyway, all right. Well, Yasha, congratulations on the book, The Identity Trap. It's uh, fascinating and incredibly thorough and, and comprehensive and filled with amazing insights and a lot of facts and ideas and history. So everybody should buy it. And um, I hope uh, we'll talk again sometime. I hope so too. That was my conversation with Yasha Monk. His new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, is in stores this week, September 26th. Yasha is the author of several other books, the founder of Persuasion, a contributor to The Atlantic, and a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Again, to hear the bonus portion of this conversation, become a paying member of the Substack at megandom.substack.com. You get to hear uh, Yasha stay overtime and nearly every week, the guest stays overtime just for paying subscribers. In the meantime, I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then.